Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back. You are listening to Behind the Knife. I'm Michael Vu, and with me is Kevin Canary. We're about to listen to part two of our recording with Dr. Shailish Agarwal, a plastic surgeon at Brigham and Women's. He's continuing our discussion on reconstruction of the trunk, and this time we're focusing on the abdomen and the chest wall. If you missed the first part of our session, don't forget to check it out. It was released just last week, and that one was about perineal reconstruction. If you ever encounter or personally do APRs, sacral pressure wounds, or Fournier debridements, I think you'll take a lot out of that episode. This is all part of a small mini-series, Plastic Surgery for the General Surgeon. And the topics and guests that we are covering are supplied by you, the listeners. So thanks again for taking your time engaging with us on Twitter and Facebook to help us deliver content that you want to listen to. And one last thing before we start, remember that we are currently asking for teams of three to apply to become behind-the-knife contributors. We envision teams comprised of something like an attending surgeon, a fellow, and a resident who can reliably produce a high-quality episode every three months for a total two-year stint. If you want to know more, listen to the 2021 kickoff episode and check out our Twitter and Facebook. All right, let's get back to the episode. So let's move on to abdominal wall reconstruction. Um, again, what are some common um, etiologies that that um, you're you're being consulted for when it comes to such a defect? You're asked to help close. Yeah. So so you know ventral abdominal wall defects, a previous history of multiple um, uh, incisions for previous uh, intra-abdominal surgery. Um, as well as um, a lot of times like urologic procedures where patients may be having, um, uh, you know, urostomy with um, ileal conduit type procedures as well. Um, So those are areas where I've been consulted for abdominal wall reconstruction. Um, You know, the, there are myriad different types of intra-abdominal procedures that could lend themselves to, um, to a non-healing, to a hernia, you know, long-term. So I think that one could think about what causes them and then kind of, you know, just group them together. Um, Mm -hmm. So to help guide our conversation, here's our case vignette for this section. It's a 60-year-old man who uh, presents with a huge incisional hernia with loss of domain from prior laparotomy. A prior laparoscopic repair with mesh was attempted many years ago, but has clearly failed. Um, You were mentioning that there are a myriad of of types of procedures that might cause this. Um, What are the unifying risk factors um, that perhaps we can be cognizant of when we're closing the original laparotomy, um, that risk factors that, uh, that increase risk of developing an incisional hernia? Yeah, so I think that these are, you know, the same wound healing types of risk factors in general. So, um, so poor nutrition, um, obesity, intra-abdominal obesity, that can um, increase intra-abdominal pressures, um, and, uh, and smoking history, you know, typically these patients haven't been radiated, uh, from, you know, toward directly towards the abdomen. So I don't think that's, uh, as much of a concern, but it is, you know, history of obesity, 
smoking, poor nutrition, previous operations. Those are all the things that, that one is concerned about. And so when you come up with, uh, when you, when you come to the patient that you've been consulted on, like the one that we just presented, what, uh, what initial questions are you asking? What, um, uh, what, what considerations are affecting your decision-making and how to close this, this defect, this hernia? Sure. So, you know, the, the things that I'm thinking about, in addition to all those comorbidities that I, that I described, um, is now what's the disposition of the mesh that's been placed in there. So, so there's a piece of mesh in there based on the, the vignette. And, um, and now when we talk about the mesh having failed, I want to know if the, is there a chance that there is a tract with the mesh? Is there any chance the mesh has been infected? Um, is there a chance that the mesh has um, integrated with uh, any of the intestinal contents in, in such that there's the potential for fistulization? Uh, I know the patient's had prior operations already, so I know that it, the patient's going to have multiple adhesions that are going to be challenging to take down. Um, and so all those things are important to me. But I think the most important thing is, is this patient going to tolerate a major operation, um, you know, from a from an overall comorbidity perspective, right? So a large ventral hernia is, you know, the, the, there, there are a couple of ways to look at it. So a large ventral hernia, low risk of strangulation. It's a larger hernia. So now if I'm going to, if I'm moving forward on a reconstructive approach for this patient, I have to know that this patient is going to tolerate multiple operations, ideally one or two, but potentially multiple if my reconstruction fails as well. So, um, so those are all things that, that I'm thinking about. Again, optimizing them. So if they're smoking, not they have to stop smoking. If their nutrition is poor, we have to uh, improve that and bring their pre-albumin up. Um, so those are all things that we actually have control over. If they're, if they're morbidly obese, then making sure they have uh, that they're on a weight loss regimen. And these large incisional hernias, they're not an emergency. Um, they're not even really an urgency. They're, they're, they're semi-elective operations. We can take our time. We can optimize the patient before we move forward on a reconstructive approach. Uh, two little questions I have uh, specifics that kind of apply to all plastics is, how long do you want people to stop smoking uh, before? Is there, is there good data on that? And then uh, also the pre-albumin, um, how do you, do you guys send them home with insurers or how do you optimize that? And what is, is there like a number, a cutoff that you use for that? Yeah. So uh, for smoking, you know, typically we'll say four to six weeks non-smoking. So we say four, four weeks non-smoking. Um, the, the fact is that, you know, I probably am even more conservative than that. I want to make sure a patient can tolerate six to eight weeks of non-smoking, especially if I'm going down a big reconstructive endeavor like this, um, because they also have to be able to hold off from smoking afterwards, right? So it's not just the beforehand, it's also the post-op. Uh, and post-op, it's not going to be six to eight weeks. It's going to be ideally indefinitely. Um, from a nutritional perspective, pre-albumin, I think the, the number is around 25 or so. Um, and, uh, an albumin greater than three and a half. And the way to optimize it is, uh, is like you said, insurers in protein supplementation and getting nutrition, you know, a nutritional consult in place. And I typically, you know, I will even go above and beyond and, and, and recommend even more protein supplementation oftentimes than, 
the nutritional colleagues um, will recommend. And that's just because, you know, I, I think that we just really need to go above and beyond for these patients. They're, they're constantly trying to heal a wound. And so they're constantly, all that drainage, all that serous fluid, it's all protein that they're leaking out. Um, and so, uh, so, you know, I'll routinely, I've had patients like talking about fornia gangrene. I've had patients with fornia gangrene who've had large wounds. I've, uh, you know, recommended three to five insurers a day. Um, and so, you know, it's uh, for, for abdominal wounds, I think it's no different. Along these lines, you know, a lot of these complex abdominal wall cases, you know, the, the inside of the abdomen is often pretty disastrous as well. What, when you have the presence of enterocutaneous fistulas, how does that affect your management? Yeah, so, I mean, I, my, my approach is, you know, I think that we have to, all those things are going to threaten the reconstruction for sure. And they're going to increase the risk of any type of intra-abdominal uh, infection after reconstruction. You know, the, the ideal of reconstruction being a closure um, means that, you know, any fistulas that exist, um, they should really be taken down and, uh, and repaired prior to moving forward with obtaining definitive closure of the abdominal wall. Uh, otherwise, you risk having, you know, you know intestinal contents uh, deep to your closure. Again, I think that's where, uh, you know, having a lot of drains in place is really important because even when you, when you take down the fistulas and you repair them, you know, there's still maybe some leak that, that exists. There may still be some type of in intestinal injury that exists. Um, and, uh, and so having drains in there to, to drain out any type of fluid before it can uh, form an abscess um, is critically important. But I think taking those down, optimizing nutrition and taking those down before performing closure, I think is important. So, so let's talk about, um, let's talk about some surgery for, for repairing, uh, the, these, these large ventral hernias. Um, let's say that you can't, you, you can't even get the, the fascial edges together. Um, there's just not enough, you know, there's too much distance. What, what are some options that a surgeon can do to, to get a little more distance, um, to oppose the fascia? Sure. So, so things that one could do, you know, separation of parts, um, so component separation will, um, will really allow you to kind of, uh, augment your coverage, especially kind of in the mid abdomen, uh, not so great lower down, um, around the pubic symphysis region. Uh, but around the mid abdomen, you know, teaching is around 20 centimeters. If you do a bilateral advancement, um, and, uh, and then, you know, to, to do that, you know, Michael, how would you do that? So I'm aware of anterior and posterior um, component separations, and I'm more familiar with the anterior one, actually. Sure. My understanding is that you release the aponeurosis of the external oblique where it kind of attaches to the rectus. Okay. Um, and I've read about and I've seen, um, I guess, um, uh, like... Uh, Skin, skin perforator sparing ways to do that where you don't have to dissect all the way under subcutaneously to get to that aponeurosis in order to protect the, the midline skin. Yes. Um, is that get kind of the, the yeah. basic concept of there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think from a, from a conceptual perspective, um, you know, what's your dissection plane once you've uh, transected just lateral to your semilunaris. Where, where are you trying to, um, where are the nerves? 
for your abdominal wall? I think they run between the um, the internal oblique and the um, transversus abdominis. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's important because you know you want to preserve those nerves because those nerves are providing strength, right? Muscular their innervation to your muscle provides tone in the muscle. Yeah, your abdominal wall. So if um, so, you know the dissection plane between your internal and external oblique is great because then you you get your advancement and you're leaving your nerves intact. Um, you know the the approach the other approach um, that you can also do at the same time, and which many people do, especially from a laparoscopic approach, is to do a posterior release as well, which also makes which also works. So you can release your you can release the fascia around the rectus muscle itself posteriorly and get advancement there or you can do a transversus abdominis um uh kind of the um insertion release and you'll get advancement there too you know i i think um the the question though is when you do that posterior release uh you know you still want to make sure that you're leaving your nerves intact right so if you start to do a dissection between your transversus abdominis and your internal oblique, then you risk um, transecting your nerves, but you can still get a nice advancement just by performing that release itself. So, and can you do both if you really need extra? Does it help provide extra length to do both? Yeah, so I've actually never done both, but I think you can. I don't see any conceptual reason that you wouldn't be able to. You know, it's a pretty strong strength layer. Your internal oblique um, insertion should be fairly strong. So doing both, if you need to, should be reasonable. I don't know what the numbers are for advancement, though, to be honest. And then, uh, you know, sometimes you either need to reinforce that or uh, you, you know, sometimes have to, in the worst case scenarios, bridge and and come back another day. And so, you know, sometimes we need mesh. Uh, how, How does mesh fit into your reconstructive plan? Yeah, so... So things um, that I'm thinking about with mesh are, um, you know, what do I want from a, so, so do I have an infected or contaminated field? And in that situation, I'm more likely to use a biologic mesh. Um, am I uh, risking being right up against um, uh, bowel? In which case I want a, uh, I want a coated mesh as opposed to an uncoated mesh. So, a coated mesh, uh, without using proprietary names, but a coated mesh would reduce the risk of adhesions between the mesh and uh, bowel. Um, if I'm doing just a strict overlay, then you know I think a proline would be fine. If I'm doing an underlay, um, uh, then you know I'm more likely to want a coated mesh, um, and I think a coated proline is fine. Uh, and then if it's infected, then, you know, then I'm going more towards my biologics. The things to think about are, you know, risk of hernia recurrence versus laxity and bulge, right? So, so hernia recurrence, in my mind, occurs if the mesh fails or if your sutures fail. And that is different from a bulge, which occurs if your mesh just kind of um, – becomes more expanded and, and uh, stretchy. it doesn't yeah. hold tension itself as much, right? So I think a biologic, much more likely to have a bulge. Um, I think, you know, I, I don't know the data on proline mesh versus biologic on failure, but I think a proline mesh, you know, fairly strong in general. But I think, you know, to that end, if it doesn't incorporate well, your sutures are more likely to fail there because it is it is not kind of able to 
expand as much from the pressure. But I think that that breaks it down is biologic, non-biologic, coded, uncoded, you know, and then thinking about the locations. But I think underlay is kind of the, the way that most people are, are performing these. What, what are the other, um, just for the, the kind of younger audience um, in their careers, what, what are the placement options? What exactly does it mean for something, for a mesh to be placed in an overlay fashion versus um, inlay or underlay? Yeah, so, so I think the inlay, so there are a lot, a lot of different terms. So inlay, um, I think of as a bridging mesh. So that's a mesh where it's really holding a lot of, it's, it's, seeing a lot of tension um, from the, uh, you know, intra-abdominal contents pushing out against the mesh itself. That's not an ideal placement at all because, you know, there's no, um, there's no opportunity for soft tissue, soft tissue healing. Um, and then I think, you know, so the, the other options being overlay and underlay. And, you know, I think most of the time, we're trying to place these as underlays as opposed to overlays. And I think the reason we're trying to do that again is, um, is one is whether you're doing this as a laparoscopic repair, right? So if you're doing this as laparoscopic repair, then underlay is what's more approachable. Um, and I think there's some data that the underlays tend to do better in general. Um, and they probably are offloading tension before the tension hits that uh, closure between your rectus fascia. Um, you know, how much of that is if there's a bias because of um, patients who are amenable to having laparoscopic repairs being potentially, you know, less invasive repairs and they're more amenable to an underlay. And so our results are better with an underlay in those patients. Don't know. But, um, but those are things to think about. Is there anything fancy or perhaps interesting that plastic surgeons are doing with their fascial closures? Um, something that maybe uh, us general surgeons might start trying ourselves. So what we do do sometimes, oh yeah, I guess you're talking about for fascia closure. I mean, if we're doing mesh closures, then sometimes we'll use mesh as our suture. So you, you'll use the, you'll use like a proline mesh as your suture, as opposed to using, um, proline suture itself and so then that that mesh that you're using a tie um is a lower risk of failing uh, itself and snapping itself i remember doing a lot of those mesh strip or mesh suture yeah. repairs when i was a medical student with dr um yeah greg demonian yeah. you know in northwestern absolutely is, so are you guys doing that? Um, is that something you do routinely or do you do it at all? What's the latest on that? It's been a little while since I talked to Dr. Dumani and about his mesh strips. You know, I think, I think that it's, um, so he's published on it. Um, and you know, he has studied abdominal wall reconstruction ad nauseum. And so I think that the way that he's reporting and describing doing it for difficult, large, uh, incisional hernias, is is how a lot of people are starting to do it now so i think that there's a trend more towards that direction than away from it hey michael i have no idea what you guys are talking about can you tell me 
<laughs> exactly. I was about to say, so for the for, for for the listeners who have no idea what it means to use mesh as suture, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Agarwal, but I remember getting a you know big sheet of polypropylene yeah. mesh. It's got like blue, it's you know, it's white mesh, but it's got blue lines that kind of run at approximately maybe two centimeter intervals. And we would just cut the the, the big mesh into strips. Yeah. And then you can uh, you can use like a, like an OPDS or something and take the needle through uh, one of the ends of the mesh, like just through one of the mesh holes, tie the suture to that, but keep the needle and then use the needle to drive through, you know, the fascia and then through the other side of the fascia, pull the, um, pull the mesh through that hole. Sometimes you got to make the hole. I mean, you have to make the hole a little bigger to accommodate the mesh. Um, and then you use the mesh as your suture. Yes. Basically, you tie the mesh into these bulkier knots. Yes. Dr. Jumanian used to talk about how he felt it was because suture was Swiss cheesing through the fascia that uh, that those repairs were failing and that the uh, the, the greater um, surface area of, of the mesh would prevent that from happening. It was a lot of fun yeah. to do. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and, and that's you described it very well. And there's a paper in, I think, uh, PRS think where he described it but yeah i mean you know that the my experience with proline closure um of the mesh has been reasonable except for you know maybe uh the one time where the proline uh suture completely failed and it didn't actually switch cheese out it uh it snapped so the old proline actually just snapped uh and maybe i didn't put them um i didn't put them close enough together uh, so that's one one possible reason, um, but you know th- that's kind of uh, something that potentially doing um, using mesh as a suture itself may uh, prevent. So, so those are kind of uh, that's another approach to doing it, in um, a way that I would that I would approach it in the future as well. Awesome! I'm glad we got to touch on that. Yeah. Any, any final words about abdominal wall reconstruction? Um, I would say, you know, abdominal wall reconstruction is, it's very challenging. It's of all the things, it's the most challenging probably because it's not just about getting coverage. It's not just about getting it to heal, right? It's about strength and support. And so the abdominal wall is a dynamic. It's not just a static structure where you're trying to fill in the hole. And, and that I think is what, what makes this so challenging. I think it, it speaks to the, to the reason I asked you where the nerves are located. Um, and, uh, and I think that, you know, it's something that even I think about when I'm doing breast reconstruction and I'm doing abdominal based breast reconstruction, right? So if I'm doing like a free flap from the abdomen for autologous breast re- reconstruction, I'm also thinking about nerves and nerve supply to the rectus that I've preserved, because if I'm cutting a bunch of nerves and I'm leaving muscle intact, it's probably not really useful. You know, muscle is as, is as functional as the nerves are that supply it. So I think that we have to think about abdominal wall reconstruction as a very dynamic, the abdominal wall is a very dynamic thing with a lot of forces all around. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, those are, that's kind of my thought on it. Great. Thank you. Okay. Let's move on to our final uh, topic for today's uh, episode, chest wall reconstruction. Um, What, what are the common etiologies for, for defects of the chest wall that, that, that you're being asked to help fix? I think the most, the most common is um, 
sternal wound dehiscence after uh, median sternotomy. Um, you know, th there are other there are other reasons, but ultimately, I think the median sternotomy is is the heart of it, um, so to speak. So that's uh, that's kind of the the wound that that I've been involved in most often take care of. A pesky median sternotomy. It's the, it's, it's the, the scourge of the chest. Um, so here's our case vignette appropriately. Uh, consider a 30-year-old man who underwent a median sternotomy for trauma. He survived, but three weeks later, plastics is called because the team has been struggling with ongoing purulent drainage from the wound and a culture of the sternum is positive for osteomyelitis. You get that phone call. What are your initial thoughts, Dr. Agarwal? So first, I'm thinking about etiology. So median sternotomy is one aspect of the etiology, but the, the other aspect is trauma, right? So this patient is very different from my 50, 55, 60-year-old patient who's had a median sternotomy for a cabbage or a mitral valve repair. And, you know, the cabbage patient and the mitral valve repair patient are two very patients as well, um, as far as what's available um, for closure. But for this patient... Um, who's had trauma, um, you know, I want to first understand why this wound happened, right? Because it's not expected um, as much as, say, a cabbage. So if it's a cabbage patient, again, much more expected. It falls within the realm of, of our expectation. If it's a trauma patient, not necessarily the case. And so I want to know what other comorbidities this patient may have. And it goes back to all the things that we spoke about earlier um, when we talked about um, uh, wound healing in general. Uh, and then I want to know, you know, what are my, so, so if this patient has osteomyelitis, uh, to what extent the patient has osteomyelitis? So how many debridements has this patient already have or had, or what debridements will we need to do in the future, um, prior to then, uh, performing any type of reconstruction. And so managing that osteomyelitis means obviously working closely with, um, the thoracic surgery team, working closely with infectious disease team as well. Um, and then planning for one, two or three debridements of the area to get rid of the infected bone. This is uh, just sort of in vascular, we deal with a lot of osteomyelitis and it's a little kind of easier to uh, maybe manage sometimes because we can kind of cut it off. How do you, in, in this situation, identify when you've adequately treated it and it's healthy enough to undergo reconstruction? Yeah, so this is, I think this is the this is the the age old question of how do you tell osteomyelitis you know in the operating room because you know at some point you have to decide to do reconstruction and you know the the number one reason that we say that our teaching is if you have a failed reconstruction in the history of an infection the reason is inadequate debridement. Well, if we all knew adequate debridement, we would never do inadequate debridement. Why would one want to do an inadequate debridement? So I think it's all about assessing the bone for healthy bleeding bone that is firm bone. When you put your ronger in there and you're um, taking bites of bone to debrid, if that bone is not bleeding, if it's not making that nice snapping, cracking sound, then it's bone that needs to go. But that's the obviously infected bone. That's not the subacute osteo that exists. But the one thing to keep in mind is that the other aspect of management are the IV antibiotics. And if we get healthy bleeding bone, then I can feel fairly comfortable that my IV antibiotics 
are getting to any residual infection that's in the area, right? So first and foremost, have to remove um, uh, ischemic bone, bone with poor blood supply, um, and bone that's obviously dead or dying. And, you know, I think you were starting to talk about this earlier, but this patient is different from the, from the cabbage patient, for instance. Um, what, what are some anatomic reasons yeah. why, why they're different or why that might be the case for, for your, your reconstructive planning? So, I mean, for, from my perspective, the things that jump out to me are, are what my options are for reconstruction. So let's say we've done this entire debridement and, you know, we've gotten to healthy bleeding tissue. Um, then my, my algorithm for this coverage now is, um, you know, where can I get soft tissue from that's got good blood supply? And I know that if a patient hasn't had a cabbage, um, their lima is, is intact. Their rema is probably intact. Um, so I could do pec turnover flaps. Um, you know, I can always do pec advancement flaps, even obviously, even if the lima or rema are taken because my thoracochromials are intact. Um, but it just opens up some of the other options. So if I needed to do, um, if I needed to do a rectus muscle, then with a lima or rema intact, then I know that my superior epigastric is intact. And so then I could take, uh, you know, right or left rectus as well as another option. Um, if it's a, you know, a 30 year old male, I guess, I mean, omentum's always an option for sternal reconstruction as well. It doesn't provide you with the skin, but I could put omentum with a skin graft on as well. But I think the main thing is the, um, vascularity of the pec, uh, muscles. For, for some people who might be, um, a little confused by the terminology, can you explain, uh, the, the turnover flap versus the advancement flap? Sure. So the advancement flap. Um, the pectoralis myocutaneous advancement flap is based off of the thoracochromial uh, vessels. And uh, what, what we're doing in that situation is basically um, undermining the pectoralis muscle uh, from the uh, underlying ribs and intercostal musculature. And, um, and then basically taking the entire skin and muscle subunit and advancing it medially. The blood supply in that situation is the um, is the thoracochromial vessel, uh, and that's sufficient to keep the entire pectoralis muscle alive. The other option is to to do the turnover, which is basically um, taking the pectoralis muscle based off of perforators from the internal mammary artery, and those segmental perforators, if you keep those intact, multiple ones intact that's sufficient to keep the entire pectoralis muscle in, uh, alive as well if the thoracochromial were to be um, ligated. So in this situation, what one does is one actually undermines subcutaneously over the entire pectoralis muscle. Then uh, from lateral to medial now begins to elevate the pectoralis muscle, making sure that so at that point you have to ligate the thoracochromial and you just are, are elevating your pectoralis muscle uh, in, this, in the same plane as before, but now starting lateral to medial and leaving your uh, perforators intact so you don't transect those perforators. Those perforators don't exist if the patient's uh, lima or rima have been taken, obviously, because those perforators come off of the internal mammary vessels. As I recall, that's a type five muscle flap, right? Uh, where it's supplied by a dominant and, and perforator. So there's some flexibility there. There is some flexibility there. That's right. 
And how do you manage the the hardware in, uh, say, an infected sternum? Uh, say the patient's got wires in. Uh, what do you do about that? So, um, so the two things with hardware. One with hardware is, you know, if a patient has had a cabbage in a, or any type of sternotomy and now they have wire cerclage to keep the sternum together, if they have now had, um, uh, you know, an infection, the assumption is that there's some sternal movement and micro, micro movement that may be occurring. Those wires, you know, in my mind, need to come out. And that, you know, requires collaboration with the thoracic or cardiothoracic surgery teams to remove the, the wires that may be in place. That does necessarily lead to an unstable sternum. But the fact is that the sequelae of an unstable sternum typically is a sternal click, um, which patients typically are okay with. There are some patients who are bothered by the sternal click. And in those patients, you can start talking about alternative reconstructive options down the line. In my mind, um, first and foremost, in a situation where you've got an infected sternum, is to uh, debreed, clean, close, so that you minimize the risk of immediate stenitis, a true life-threatening infection, um, and then come back another day if the click is really bothering them. Um, you know, the, the placement of hardware is something that, um, that we're able to do to, uh, to bridge across. And I think that's reasonable if the patient doesn't have an infection, an active infection that you're trying to treat. Um, and in that situation, you know, then you're stabilizing the sternum. Um, uh, but, you know, from personally, uh, that's not something that I would do if the patient's had an infection. Okay. Well, well, thank you so much, Dr. Agarwal, um, for, 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 for coming onto the show on a, on a Sunday and no less. Um, we have to have you on again sometime. You've been an excellent, um, an excellent guest and it's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for the great questions. And for you listeners who've stuck it out to the end, I wanted to mention that if you want to hear more about abdominal wall reconstruction, you should look back through the archives of Behind the Knife. We've hosted some great surgeons in the past, like Dr. Dana Tellum. They have given their own rich perspectives on the challenging ventral hernia, and I think listening to those episodes would dovetail really well into our plastic surgeon's angle on things. And a final plug for our call for Behind the Knife contributors, listen to the 2021 kickoff episode and visit our Twitter to know more. Some of the three-man teams you guys are putting together look like they are going to be real heavy hitters, so I cannot wait to see more. Until next time, dominate the day. 